I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. We'll be in John chapter 3 tonight. We'll look at uh, verses 16 through 21. Before we go there, let's start with a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we are thankful to you for your love to us. I pray that as we look into your word tonight that we would learn more about you and more about ourselves, that we might be with you one day in heaven. And I ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so uh, last time I spoke, we were in John 3, 1 through 15. I've been going through John. I suppose I have, I don't know, eight or ten sermons now from John. And it just so happens the last time that I spoke, Stuart spoke on the same exact thing the, the uh, week before. And so I knew I was going to John 3.16, and then one month ago, Jason Cicero came from Annandale and spoke on John 3.16. So here we are again. I'm following after somebody else in the same, same thing, but we're going to do it anyway. John 3.16 through 21. I'm going to ask a question and, uh, and then answer my own question, and I want you to keep it in mind then as we go through this text here today. The question is, how is God's love shown? And what prevents us from receiving God's intended blessing? How is God's love shown and what prevents us from receiving his intended blessing? And here's my answer to it. God's love is shown in curses and in blessings. And it is wickedness that keeps us from receiving his, in, his intended blessing. God's love is shown in curses as it is also shown in blessings. And it is our own evilness that keeps us from receiving his intended blessing. So John 3, 16 through 21 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because... He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." We start right off here, for God so loved, and, and we, we like to hear that, right? Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2, 20, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. April 25th, 2015. A 7.8 magnitude earthquake shook Nepal, devastated it. 8,000 people were killed. 19 climbers on Mount Everest. A few weeks later, 7.3 magnitude 
earthquake shook the same area and killed even more. September 16, 2015, 8.3 magnitude earthquake destroyed central Chile and triggered tsunami warnings. Every week, every month of every year, tornadoes and typhoons, tsunamis and earthquakes, wildfires and heat waves utterly destroy cities, villages, homes, and kill thousands upon thousands. And we say, God is love. Robert Mugabe came to power in Zimbabwe in 1980 and promptly began to kill his opposition, and he murdered 20,000 civilians. We could name just a few more like him from the 20th century alone, which is can be demonstrated as the bloodiest century known to man. Hitler embarked on war and genocide and has attributed responsibility for 15 million deaths. Joseph Stalin, through killing and starvation and his gulags and everything else that he did, is responsible for 25 million deaths. Chairman Mao of China, 40 million deaths. And we say, God is love. According to the World Health Organization, 276,000 babies die within four weeks of birth every year from congenital anomalies. Disease and illness and birth defects kill the young and the old and the weak every second of every day. The cold hand of death comes for everyone and we still say, God is love. So I'm proposing that God's love is shown in curses as it is also shown in his bountiful gifts. So last time, as I said, we went through John 3, 1 through 15. And to review that, Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus sees, here's a man who, who must be from God, but he's not quite getting the picture. His spiritual eyes are a little bit blinded. And Jesus is talking to him and trying to open his eyes and trying to get him to understand. And as he goes through this, he's really trying to explain faith to him. And as we get to the portion of verses 14 and 15, Jesus brings up an Old Testament scripture about the, the serpents in the wilderness. And this was a, a scripture that Nicodemus would have known quite well as a, as a Pharisee, as, as a man who studied the scripture, as a teacher in Israel, as a very highly educated man, a man who sat on the Sanhedrin, the, the high court of Israel. So this is really an elite educated man. He knew this story. And Jesus brings it to him again. And he, he brings it up in, in saying this is how the Son of Man must be lifted up as that bronze serpent. But he's referencing this story from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. So I'll read that. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. This is what Jesus is referencing. From Mount Hor, they sent out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And, people, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
So here's this story, right? Jesus brings it up. God was destroying the Israelites in the desert with venomous snakes. Now, is that the love of God? Well, it's very obviously the wrath of God, right? I mean, that, we can see that. And yet, after referencing this event very directly in verse 16, Jesus goes to saying, for God so loved. And it kind of makes me stop for a second when I, when I consider that story. Really? What, what do you mean, Jesus? You've just referenced an event in which God is killing people, judging them, and then you say God loved the world. We so easily say God is love. And it is, it is true. And we read those verses, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe that God, the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That's 1 John 4, 16. John 13, 35, from this very same gospel. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another is how we or how anyone knows that we belong to God or that we are followers of Jesus because we're showing the character and the spirit of God. We are living like Jesus. But we say it so lightly. God is love. We sing a beautiful song taken from 1 John, and we repeat that phrase over and over and over, God is love. And uh, so often, we probably aren't any deeper into praise of God than vain repetition. Yes, God is love, and God is wrathful. God takes vengeance. God is just. God is righteous. God judges the world in righteousness. God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If, he, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful to what? What is God faithful to? When we speak of faith, we, we talk of placing our belief in something greater than ourselves, of looking to the heavenly city, looking to the heavenly treasure, looking to God, looking to the God of hope. But what is God faithful to? God is the greatest being. The whole universe is as nothing in the light of his infinite majesty. It's as nothing in the glory of God when compared to the glory of God. He is perfect and all of his attributes. And one day, the power of God will roll the universe up like a scroll. God, in his power, will burn the heaven and earth. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The foundation of God's throne, the foundation the underlying principles of God's reign are righteousness and justice, and yet loving kindness goes before him, and so does faithfulness. God is faithful. Faithful to what? 2 Timothy 2.13 said God is faithful. 
He always remains faithful and true and trustworthy to himself. He cannot deny himself. When Adam sinned, the judgment of God poured forth because God cannot deny himself. His perfect, holy, righteous nature cannot commune with sin, cannot abide with sin. It cannot overlook sin. The judgment of God poured forth because he is faithful to his righteousness and justice. So death entered the world when Adam sinned. Men immediately became separated from God, and bodies began to break down. DNA became corrupted, and disease entered the world. Sickness came, and all died. Everyone returns to dust. Thorns and thistles infest the ground, and work became meaningless, became a futile toil with produce that comes only through sweat and then decays. The joy of life and childbirth became a painful reminder of sin that will come to infect that new soul. And all creation cries out in the pains of childbirth to be released from this curse. Psalm 39 says that when God rebukes sin, it's like a moth eating what is dear to a man. And so David there makes the connection that what God did was to eat what is right in front of us, what's dear to us, so that our attention could be drawn somewhere else. The judgment of God also poured forth when he gave, gave us over to follow our own desires and wallow in the consequences of our own paths. But even in all of that, the love of God was going before his throne of righteousness and justice. If we could not be in the presence of this holy, just, and righteous God, then he would send forth judgment so that we might get a glimpse, a parable, of what it is to be eternally separated from him. I've heard people say that hell isn't an actual place while trying to make a case that it will just be an evil place, maybe like living under the reign of Hitler. I, don't, I think the reign of Hitler is probably just a small parable of what hell is like. Mere tiny glimpses of no comparison. The futility, the meaninglessness, the decay, the disease, pain, and sickness, the bad choices, the turning to idols, and bearing the pain of all of it is meant to get us to seek for him. There is more, there is satisfaction, there is lasting treasure, there is freedom from tears and pain. There is a God of hope. So this is what happened to those Israelites who were already wandering in the desert because of unbelief. They groaned against their only hope for survival. They groaned against God. He struck them with a plague of venomous snakes because of it. The response of the people to those venomous snakes was to cry out, We have sinned against the Lord. They sought for God, and the love of God went before him to have Moses lift up that bronze serpent to bear the curse if they would only just look at it. They would come face to face with an ugly image of the snakes that were brought on by their sin. They would come face to face with an image of the judgment of God on their sin. They would come face to face with an image that represented deliverance. 
And as the people looked upon the serpent, a sign of the curse that they had brought on themselves, in a stark contrast, they would also see the mercy of God. But the fact that faith to look upon the bronze serpent would be their saving grace made God's love all the more stark. In the face of our extremely ugly sin, God in love lifts up a terrible sight. Bloody, beaten, shredded, mocked, spit upon, ridiculed, hanging naked on a cross, Jesus. We see the curse we deserve and we see the love of God. John 3, 14 through 16, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves a world that's been bitten by the snake, a world dying from the venom of sin. The world is judged. Those without Christ are judged. Those in Christ were once under condemnation, dying without hope, and God lifted up his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So what I'm trying to show is just a little bit of the depth of God's love. And I know what I've said is inadequate to impress the real weight of God's love onto myself, let alone onto you as I struggle for thoughts and words. God's love is shown in curses just as it is shown in his bountiful gifts. So if there's a takeaway point from the connection that I'm trying to show, from the connection between the snakes of the wilderness and God loving the world, it is that God's love is shown to us in ways that goes beyond blue skies and rainbows and gentle rainfalls and glorious vistas. God's love is shown to us in thistles and thorns and decay and disease and natural disaster and the consequence of our evil ways. God is faithful to his righteousness and justice. He has to be. He's the greatest being. He's the sustainer of the world. If he is not faithful to himself, he is not God. If he is not faithful to himself, he cannot love the world. He inflicted the world with all these kinds of curses so that by any means, the world might turn to his mercy. The mercy of a God who is faithful to himself so that he could remain able to save those who seek for him. God sent the snakes and God sent the deliverance. God's love is shown in curses and in mercy and in bountiful gifts. But what about Hitler and Stalin and Mugabe and Mao? What about those guys and all the people they killed and all the evil they displayed? Is that still a question in your mind? Verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There is evil, real godless evil in the world, and it is embodied in people like that, in, in serial killers and sadists. But evil like that serves to point out that there is indeed truth and light. No one 
but the most foolish and hardened liar would look at these examples and say that they are not examples of evil. No one but a person who is so completely wedded to a position that there is no God and that there is no objective truth